Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I am Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So do you remember when we talked a little bit about Bioshock Infinite? Oh, yeah. Our Loving versus Virginia. We talked about um, race in Bioshock Infinite in our listener mail section of one of the two parts of that podcast. And by the end of Bioshock Infinite, the race is a little more problematic than at the beginning. Yeah. Just if you had only played there. the beginning. Yeah, point. I had not gotten to the end. By the end, there are some more nuanced layers of, of uh, racial problematicness. But the reason we're talking about it today is that one of the big milestone events for the floating city of Columbia in that game is the Boxer Rebellion. Uh, during the Boxer Rebellion, the floating city opens fire on Chinese citizens and the city of Beijing, which was then known as Peking. The U.S. orders the city to stand down, and Comstock, the city's leader, refuses to do it. So when the U.S. sanctions the city and tries to recall it back home, the city secedes and cuts ties with the U.S. and vanishes into the sky. So as I'm playing the game, I'm kind of like Boxer Rebellion. I know a vague sense of what that was all about. I think we should look further into it. And let's just go ahead and say in advance that this episode is going to be pretty gruesome. Yeah, there were lots of uh, very unkind things done during this particular skirmish. Extremely so. Yeah, uh, and it's one of those things that when we look at it, be- when we look back at it in history, it's so violent and so gruesome uh, that we kind of need some more historical context to wrap our heads around how we got to that point. Yeah, so, how it had ratcheted up to the point where people were willing to do some of the things they did to one another, right? So the Boxer Rebellion, which is also called the Boxer Uprising in the West, was a gruesome, violent slaughter of Chinese Christians and foreigners, followed by a gruesome, violent slaughter of the Boxers. So really, I was going to make an image gallery to go with this podcast, similar to what we did with the uh, the Karni Mata Temple and the, the Hindenburg. 90% of the images that I found were of piles of decapitated bodies. So it was a pretty violent and horrifying event in human history. Yeah, and it's been a while since we delved deep into Chinese history. We did the recent episode on Empress Dowager Shiji, who figures into this event, but in terms of um, just the history of China and not just one figure we haven't done in a bit. So here is some historical context for this little ditty. So China's relationship with the West had been pretty adversarial for much of the 19th century, and the hostility was coming from both sides. So broadly speaking, China viewed Westerners as barbarians or foreign devils, and the West viewed China as a backward nation and viewed Chinese people within their own borders as a problem to be dealt with or prevented. So, for example, in the United States, there was the idea of the the yellow peril, and there were laws preventing Chinese people from immigrating to the United States, especially in the Western states, as well as laws preventing marriage between white people and Chinese people. And at the same time, Western nations also saw China as an opportunity. Uh, some were looking for territory, others were looking for trade. And so parts of China were effectively being divided up among several Western nations, some leasing land from the Chinese, but others just went in and seized it. China was also being pressured into trading relationships that it didn't necessarily want. And in a series of 
unequal treaties, which is their name, in the 19th century, China had to give concessions to a number of Western nations, including Great Britain, the United States, France, Germany, Japan, which isn't Western, and Russia, uh, also. And as their names, as the names of the treaties suggest, the Western nations usually got a disproportionately better deal. Yeah. And while Japan is not strictly speaking a Western nation, it was by this point in its history, Accepting a lot more westernization right. than China was. So Japan, in a lot of ways, had more in common with uh, Great Britain and the United States than China did. It's kind of a bridge yeah. between those cultures. So the Opium Wars soured relationships that were already tense. The first Opium War was between Britain and China. It ended in 1842 with treaties that gave the British access to five Chinese ports, along with other rights. Then in the Second Opium War, Britain and France fought together against China. That war ended in 1860, and China was forced to allow a diplomatic presence from other nations in Beijing, which we're just going to call it Beijing for the sake of simplicity in this episode. Uh, along with other allowances for travel and freedom of movement for foreigners. And this really is something of an insult to injury situation, since part of what China had been fighting against was opium trafficking. Uh, you can learn more about the opium wars in our previous episode, How the Opium Wars Worked, uh, which will explain a little bit more about that particular conflict and why what the factors were in its um, in that little disagreement. Uh, China's defeat in the Second Sino-Japanese War in 1894 and 1895 showed the world that the nation and its military were floundering a little bit. The military was not strong. And afterwards, several nations made a grab for territory and trading rights. In addition to the concessions that it had already made to Japan, China also made concessions to Britain, France, and Germany. And Russia was also very eager to claim land adjacent to its border with China. On top of the difficult relationships that were going on at the international scale between the countries, there were also tensions between Chinese people and foreigners within the country's own borders. The influence of Western culture was threatening. And while there were clashes of cultures and religions, that really wasn't the full extent of it. The modernizations that were being introduced at the time, uh, like agricultural and transportation technologies, cheap mass-produced goods, those were all changing the way the world worked. And it was causing people to lose their jobs. So basically, Westernization was bringing new ideas and technologies, and it was also wrecking the Chinese economy and a lot of its social systems that had been in place for a very long time. Some of this conflict was specifically between Chinese converts to Christianity and everyone else. Missionaries were really quick to defend Christians if they accused non-Christians of discrimination. And they were also pretty quick to get involved with property and employment disputes as well. This made non-Christians feel like they were being ganged up on by outsiders, and it spread the perception of Christians as aggressive and demanding bringers of unwanted Western influence. Empress Dowager Shiji was quoted as calling Chinese Christians the worst people in China. And communities that had been close-knit were starting to crumble as Christian converts stopped taking part in community activities that were tied to other religions. Converts were also ostracized, and they were cut off from community support by the rest of the population. So this was creating schisms that the whole social fabric really could not withstand. 
And then within the com- the Christian communities themselves, there was some conflict. Some fracturing. Yeah, there yeah. was uh, between like the Protestants and the Catholics. So by the turn of the century, this is where China was. It was it was not an easy time in China at all, um, either economically or social or socially. And it sort of seemed like China needed to make a choice to either get rid of the Westerners and to go back to the way things used to be or to accept Westerners and Western influence into their culture. And that, of course, brings us to the boxers, uh, also called Iho Chuan, or the Righteous and Harmonious Fists. And once they got the support of the government, that name changed to Yihu Chuan, so this, the sort of CH sound changes to a T, and then that meaning is Righteous and Harmonious Militia. So their nickname of the boxers came from their martial arts rituals, which believers claimed they gave them supernatural powers stemming from possession. This possession gave them a sort of of holy armor. And the boxers had roots in two earlier groups. One was a society of vigilantes that had arisen after the Sino-Japanese War in an attempt to defend their own property in the absence of law enforcement or military personnel. And the other was a group of just ordinary rural people who practiced martial arts and spiritual rituals in groups in public. So it was part of their community culture. The boxers were often poor and often from northern parts of China. And the way of life in this part of the world was really difficult. It had been marked for years by alternating uh, floods and droughts, really poor harvests. Famine and poverty were widespread, and especially so through much of the late 1800s. And like we said before, the mechanization and modernization that was being introduced was making things worse for the average person instead of better. The boxer movement actually started in Shantung province, which is south of Beijing, uh, which at the time, as we've said, was called Peking. Uh, and it spread like wildfire, even though it didn't really have any kind of central leader or a power structure. But its anti-Western, anti-Christian sensibilities were really appealing to people who were living in overcrowded, impoverished areas. And it was getting steadily worse in the aftermath of the Western influence coming into their world. The boxers also saw Chinese converts to Christianity as cultural traders who had turned their backs on China in exchange for a meal. This earned the converts to Christianity the nickname Rice Christians. Aggression against Christians in China started off with the spread of rumor and misinformation about foreigners and Christians, similar to the vile rumors spread about Jewish people during the Holocaust. Then it progressed to things like extortion and protection rackets, and that escalated pretty quickly into actual physical violence with riots, gruesome killings, and rapes starting after the Second Opium War ended in 1860. The target for this violence was both the Western missionaries and the Chinese converts to Christianity. And after years of this kind of activity, things really took a turn in 1899. At that point, Italy wanted to take control of Sanmen Bay, and China said no. Uh, Italy backed down, and during all of this, Shiji was effectively ruling as the empress. Uh, she was empress dowager at this point. And this little victory made the Chinese government start to wonder if they could, in fact, just get rid of all the Westerners if they just took a stand. And the boxers were there. 
they openly disliked and distrusted Westerners and Christians. And they essentially provided a ready resource for the government to use as an unpaid army, both by ignoring what they were up to and then later by actively encouraging them and directing them. And Fiji also knew that if she didn't handle them correctly, the boxers could turn on her. So before they began to focus on the Christians, their goal had been to overthrow the Qing dynasty, which she was a part of, and restore the Ming dynasty. The first missionary fatality of the Boxer Uprising occurred at the end of December 1899, when a band of boxers ambushed British missionary Reverend Sidney Brooks. They stripped him naked, led him around for a while, and then killed and beheaded him when he tried to flee. Skirmishes and attacks continued to go on throughout the rest of the winter and into the spring. Western leaders tried to pressure the Chinese government to stop the attacks and to investigate uh, Reverend Brooks's death, but there was no real success in those uh, requests. On January 11th, in response to Western demands to rein in the boxers, Shiji refused to label them as a criminal organization and said that they were a part of Chinese society. And at this point, the religious leaders in Beijing were receiving pretty regular reports about the violence and destruction that was happening and was also getting closer to them. Uh, in hindsight, there was certainly plenty of notice that China was not safe for Christians or foreigners. And there were Westerners who left, but missionaries were often reluctant to leave their missions because some were running as hospitals and they were providing care for desperately impoverished people. Uh, so even though things were getting really frightening, a lot of them chose to stay, or in many cases, they just didn't have the means to pick up and leave. Everything came to a head in the late spring and early summer of 1900. By this point, the Chinese government had given up even the appearance of trying to stop the violence against foreigners and Christians and the Chinese people who worked for them. In the Shantung, Shanxi, and Chili provinces, boxers lay siege to missions. They killed missionaries and converts in really gruesome ways. Uh, many stories of torture, maiming, and people being burned and buried alive began to spread. On May 30th, foreign ministers in Beijing asked for their governments to send troops to help protect them. So an international contingent of troops arrived in Beijing on May 31st and June 4th. And throughout, these international forces represented governments that all had their own agendas for China, some of which contradicted one another, but they were able to temporarily unite to try to protect and later liberate the Westerners and Christians that were in China at the time. By early June, things in Beijing were becoming increasingly grim and dangerous. Uh, And at that point, an international relief effort left the port city of Tianjin, headed for Beijing. By then, the bands of boxers were roaming the area around Beijing and in more remote parts of China, destroying missions and massacring foreigners and Christians. They were also distributing propaganda and destroying the railroads and telegraph wires, which were two Western introductions that many Chinese people believed were destructive and possibly evil. On June 11th, the Japanese Chancellor Sujiyama was killed. He was disemboweled and dismembered outside of the city by Kansu troops, uh, which were a Chinese Muslim army that was supporting Shiji and the boxers. On June 14th, the German minister, Clemens von Kettler, executed a Chinese man. This followed a student shooting of a Chinese person outside of the Beijing race course five days before. At this point, anti-foreign and anti-Christian activity within Beijing really surged. 
The boxers cut the telegraph wires leading out of Beijing, and that put the Westerners that were in Beijing completely out of touch with their respective governments for a period of weeks. And this further inflamed the situation, since the governments had no way of knowing whether their people in Beijing were alive or dead, uh, and the Westerners in Beijing had no way of getting reliable information from the outside world. So diplomatic efforts on the parts of governments did not have good information to go on, and neither did the people that were stuck in Beijing. But just before the lines were cut, Great Britain's senior foreign minister, Sir Claude MacDonald, managed to send word that they really needed help. A relief force was mustered of 2,100 men from the countries that made up an eight-nation alliance that played an active role throughout the rest of this uh, incident. Those were Great Britain, Germany, Russia, France, the United States, Japan, Italy, and Austria. The U.S. involvement in this whole thing was really quite historic. Uh, The troops had been stationed in Manila, and President McKinley chose to get them involved in the conflict on his own. He did not go through Congress. And that set a precedent for how presidents handled later conflicts. The troops left on June 10th, but Shiji sent imperial forces to meet them. She also sent imperial troops to form a blockade around the port, trapping 600 foreigners and about 4,000 Chinese Christians there. On June 17th, Shiji decreed that all foreigners must leave Beijing. But almost no one had the means to do so. Missionaries were reluctant to leave their missions, as we mentioned before, and most foreigners were convinced that they would be killed as soon as they left the city. And since the telegraph lines had been cut, no one within Beijing had a way to contact their home government to find out what was going on or to confirm what the conditions were like outside of Beijing. Within Beijing, boxers began burning churches in the homes of foreigners and killing suspected Christians on sight. Reports of maiming, torture, and mutilating bodies were common. Residents of the diplomatic quarter started trying to reinforce things to fortify the quarter and barricade the entrances and to keep the military personnel who had been requested earlier uh, inside with them to help keep them safe. On June 20th, two days before the International Relief Force was ultimately turned back from Beijing, the siege of Beijing's diplomatic quarter began. The diplomatic quarter was also known as the Legation Quarter. It was about three quarters of a square mile within the wall of Beijing's Tartar City. Diplomats from Britain, America, France, Germany, Spain, Japan, and Russia and Italy lived inside. And the diplomatic quarter wasn't just home to embassies. There were also shops and banks and other businesses. And the people living there included missionaries, researchers, journalists, and people who were just visiting China. And they represented 18 different nations. So there were a range of different languages being spoken there. The people in the diplomatic quarter also had their own racial and ethnic tensions among themselves. They didn't always get along, even within the best of times. And this also went for the different denominations of Christians who were within the quarter as well. Then, thanks to overcrowding and the lack of provisions because of the siege, disease was really widespread. And among the group were also about 300 Chinese Christians, and they almost always fared the worst. Uh, When people divided up food and supplies, those Chinese Christians usually got the short end of the stick. The other uh, people in the quarter would keep bigger shares for themselves, and they would really get kind of the scraps. There were also refugees from the countryside who had been driven into Beijing by the boxer activity, uh, taking refuge in the diplomatic quarter. And at this point, most of the non-Christian Chinese people that had been in the diplomatic quarter had already left. They were out of there. 
the diplomatic quarter wasn't the only place where foreigners and Christians lived in the city of Beijing. There were other missions, church-related hospitals, that sort of thing scattered all around the city. These were under constant threat during the rebellion as well, and then once the siege began, they didn't really have anywhere to run, and they couldn't get back to the where most of the official offices of, of their denomination were located. They, they were sort of cut off from one another. Another international release force of 20,000 men left Tianjin on August 5th. And that force fought two major battles with the Chinese, uh, many of whom were armed only with spears and swords along the way. Uh, the force arrived to liberate the diplomatic quarter on August 14th, 1900, after capturing Beijing. The siege at that point had lasted for 55 days. The Chinese perspective on this wasn't so much that it, it was that an international force had gathered to liberate its citizens. Um, the Chinese perspective was more that eight foreign governments had collectively decided to finish the job of subjugating and parceling out China to their own ends and had just used the besieged city as a handy excuse to do it. So at that point, the Empress Dowager and her court, had uh, they fled to Xi'an. So at this point, the siege, which was horrifying, has been liberated. Uh, the Empress Dowager and her court have fled. We sort of get an idea of, of just how many people have been killed. Uh, apart from the military fatalities, somewhere between 200 and 300 uh, foreigners were killed during the Boxer Rebellion. But tens of thousands of Chinese Christians were murdered. And in the weeks after the siege was broken, Western forces continued to grow their numbers. Uh, they occupied Beijing and they spread out into more remote areas to quell the boxers. And this time, the reports coming in from the countryside were of massacres and beheadings on the part of the Western soldiers and suicides of Chinese citizens who could not flee. While the international response to this incident stopped just short of sort of subdividing China, the Western troops were definitely vastly better armed and better prepared than the Chinese troops, and they beheaded many of the boxers that they killed. The foreign forces also looted, rampaged, and executed people at will following the rebellion. On February 1st of 1901, the Chinese government agreed to abolish the Boxer Society. The Peace Protocol of Beijing, also known as the Boxer Protocol, was signed in September of 1901, and that officially ended the conflict and forced China to pay a really large indemnity to the foreign governments. And the size of that dollar amount effectively bankrupted the nation. China was also directed to execute the boxer leaders and to permit Western nations to keep troops stationed in China. And China was really weakened and humiliated, obviously, by the entire event. It was damaged from a financial standpoint and from a military standpoint and from a diplomatic standpoint with the rest of the world. We talked about that a little bit in our Shiji episode. Uh, and the nation wound up taking a backseat to Japan, which really became the major Asian power at the time. The results of the rebellion also really deepened anti-foreign and even xenophobic sentiment in China and planted the seeds of revolutions to come. The Qing dynasty collapsed just over a decade later. And in the minds of the American military, this event solidified the need to stay in control of the Philippines and keep a force there so that they could maintain a powerful presence in Asia. So that's 
sort of an overview of the Boxer Rebellion. Because of the time period when this takes place and how methodical many people were Mm -hmm. in their keeping of diaries and letters, there are many, many, many first-person accounts and many, many books on the Boxer Rebellion. So there are all kinds of stories that we could go into. Um, This is sort of an an overview of of what happened and what led up to it uh, and why. And as I was doing research for this, I found an editorial cartoon that pretty much spelled it out, that we had started with atrocities being committed by Chinese people that were then mirrored by atrocities committed by the relief forces who came in. Yeah. So it was a horrifying event all around. Yes, for sure. I mean, nobody can walk away saying that they were... No one took the high road. Really not at Uh, all. At least collectively. There were individual people who tried really hard. And there were Chinese troops who were trying to prevent violence and trying to protect the people who were being targeted by the boxers. So it was not an entirely one-sided thing that was happening within China, but the savagery was really extreme. Savagery is a pretty accurate word for what was going on. Yeah. I don't know if we would have done this episode had I had a clear sense of just how much brutality went on before I started research. Well, but it is important to Yeah study even the less than delightful parts of history. It's definitely it's all important. And I think you also have listener mail. I do. This is from Franklin and it is about our episode on Sarah Emma Edmonds who served during the Civil War. Franklin says, I just listened to the Civil War podcast that talked about women who served under the guise of men. In our culture, a woman could fight with male warriors in the open. Moving Robe Woman was a Hunkpapa warrior who fought at the Battle of Little Bighorn to avenge her brother, One Hawk. Buffalo Calf Road Woman was a Northern Cheyenne woman who rescued her brother at the Battle of the Rosebud. She became the hero of the battle on the Cheyenne side and had the battle named for her actions. Battle where the girl saved her brother. The Cheyenne credited her for dismounting Custer at the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Thank you so much, Franklin. That is really cool. It makes me want to do um, research on those. Yeah. That, well, and the, um, one of the other notable events in history that keeps coming up in Bioshock Infinite. <laughs> we'll stop talking about it one day. One day there will be nothing else to mine from Bioshock Infinite, but uh, is Wounded Knee. Yeah. Um, so there is lots of territory we could research in the whole realm of the military history of of many Native Americans. Yeah, which is something, I mean, I know I never really learned that much about in school, and I think probably most other people did not. Yeah. Sometimes you get a kind of glossy, quick version. Yeah, well, and then most of the Native American history that I got in school was, like, local history. It was sort of in the, like, in the North Carolina history year of history class. Yep. So, yes. Thank you again so much for sending us that, Franklin. If you would like to write to us on this or any other topic, you can at historypodcast.discovery.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash historyclassstuff and on Twitter at History. You can find our Tumblr at mistinhistory.tumblr.com and we are on Pinterest. If you'd like to learn more about some of the historical context that led up to the Boxer Rebellion, you can go to our website and search for Opium Wars, and you will find the article, How the East India Company Changed the World. 
You can do all that and a whole lot more on our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Audible.com is the leading provider of downloadable digital audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. Audible has more than 100,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash history to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today.